Father, we take a moment again now as we open up your word, which we are told are the very words of life. And that this word that we open um, was given to us by you, the one who spoke and everything came to be. You brought order from chaos. And your word does the same. Because if we aren't anchored to something that is true, then we end up with uh, a world that we construct of our own doing, of our own making. And we know, although that sounds attractive, that it ends in destruction. And so we pray that you tether us to your word, that it would be the anchor for our souls, that it would be a light to our path, that it would be our food, that it would be our nourishment, that it would be our strength, that it would be our guide. And that is true because it is true, but also by virtue of Holy, your Holy Spirit, you apply its truth to our hearts. So we pray that would happen as we open up your words of life today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the book of Nehemiah, and we're finishing the book today. We're in chapter 13. And what I'm going to do is just highlight a couple of passages, kind of walk us through instead of reading it. It's in its entirety on the front end. Uh, so much uh, that could be said, obviously, and we have said about the book of Nehemiah. Hope it's been a good journey of looking at rebuilding the foundations. That's how we've kind of couched it. But the book of Nehemiah is you know, very much about a man who was a person of tremendous faith, a man of prayer. So much of the book talks about his prayer life with God. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of integrity. And all this we see before he arrives in Jerusalem. If you recall, he was in exile in a foreign country. And he had appealed uh, by virtue of having access to the king as the person who tasted his wine to go back and begin rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Ezra before him had started working on the temple, but everything was still very much exposed to threat, and he was crushed over this. So he appeals to the king. King sends him back, and as you've been with us through this journey, you see all kinds of inspiration along the way in opposition that arises to and all that we've gleaned from learning about this man of God. I have expressed before my own respect for men and women of the faith who've endured to the end. I just don't think there's anything more beautiful than that. Trying, I'm going to be very, oh, there we go. I don't know if you heard anything I said before. And I'll slowly phase out and I'll try to do this uh, again and try to get this quite a little bit right. Um, so I very much respect men and women of the faith who've endured to the end. Uh, to, to me, that's an incredibly high value, and it's something very attractive. Because as I walk through this journey of faith as well, I don't want to falter to the point of giving up on it. I mean, there's ebbs and flows, there's ups and downs, just like there is on many a King's Island ride. But I want to be strapped in till the end, till the finish. So when I see examples of that in the Bible, it's very inspiring. By the way, as you open up your Bible, you'll find lots of people who didn't go all the way to the end as well. Both exist. And in my own life, I have sought out uh, elderly men who can invest in me uh, in their 
you know, that list is getting younger. I'm aging, so there's sort of this like axis thing happening. But 70s, 80s, um, I really respect those, those men and all that they've brought to bear in their faith. Uh, and, and, and this book in, in Nehemiah is so encouraging along the way because you see a man like this and he's bringing a whole culture, a whole group of people who've faltered in their faith, calling them back to their basic commitments. And in chapters 10 through 12, which is a large section we covered last week, we celebrated all of their, their hard work had paid off. They'd rebuilt the foundations. The walls were up. They were making new commitments. They didn't even seem to be motivated by Nehemiah primarily. They're responding because they've seen what God has done. And they're saying, we will be true. And you saw how that happened last week. And we opened up, you know what, I might just switch to this other thing. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, check, check, check. Can you hear me? Is that good? All right. Uh, so, they have all these commitments, and they've said, we're going to do this. Now, when you open up chapter 13, there's another little thing there that could say 12 years later, basically. Because in the interim, in chapter, between chapter 12 and 13, Nehemiah has gone back to the king. He was just on loan. And then he says, says there in verse 6, in a certain year of Artaxerxes, which is 12 years later, he's going back to see how things are going. And what he finds is pretty discouraging because these strong commitments they made in the beginning have now been eroded away in just a little over 10 years. The people are acting just like they had before. And this kind of felt, sounds like the book of Judges, doesn't it? If you're familiar with that, this cycle uh, where the people realize they need, they need to change their ways and they, they repent, they say we've done what's wrong and God raises up a, a deliverer for them and soon enough everybody's doing whatever seems right in his or her own eyes. Again. Nehemiah sound, found something very similar. They began to compromise, and as such, God has not remained in the place of priority. So last week we said that was all about making God a priority. And Nehemiah ends with a declaration that we need to make sure we're keeping God a priority all the way to the end. What happened? What does he find when he goes back? Well, the first thing that we find here is that the spiritual leaders had compromised their integrity in verses 4 through 9. Just a little glimpse of that. Eli, uh, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms for the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used for the store to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles. So this guy who was a priest, he was in charge of these holy things set aside, had some rooms where they collected the tithes, and one of these had been cleared out, and his buddy had moved on in. And who was his buddy? Tobiah. Have you heard that name before in the book of Nehemiah? Remember Sanballat? He was kind of the ringleader of the bullies, the playground bullies who were coming in there. And Tobiah was the guy who said, yeah, 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 what he said. What he said, he was acting all tough 
along the way too. He was an enemy of God that Nehemiah had called out, and now he's taking up residence in the house of God. And 10 through 12, it said, don't neglect the house of God. I think this applies as negligence. Somehow, the very priest who was supposed to be in charge of these things had buddied up with somebody who was against God's purposes and God's people. And the spiritual leaders then had compromised their integrity. They were complicit in what was happening. And Nehemiah has none of this. He's a very strong leader if you look at verses 7 through 8. I learned about the evil thing that Elishab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. He goes into the room and he takes all this stuff and he throws it out. And that's that's kind of mild compared to what he does a little bit later. This guy, when he's cleaning house, he doesn't mess around. He's a very, very strong leader. Nobody was wondering, he's a cleric, right? There's nobody's wondering what's going on with this guy. He's mad because the things that were supposed to be treated as holy have been desecrated. And the people in charge of it, it's not even that they were apathetic. They were complicit in allowing it to happen. Spiritual leaders compromising their integrity. Last week, we ordained Tony White as an elder, and part of what we were talking about is the charge for elders. They're basically shepherds of the church. They're, they're, they're given the care of the flock over which they are overseers. A charge is certainly something that we gave to Tony, the pastors and elders, but anybody who's in a position of spiritual leadership has got to ask the similar questions, and pretty much that applies to every single one of you. If you're somebody who's aligning with the things of God today, says, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, you have a position of leadership over somebody, probably down to the youngest kid. And if not, you only have to wait long enough for somebody to be younger than you. And you'll have authority. You'll have a position of responsibility, and you cannot compromise your integrity. Dads, moms, older men, older women, older siblings. You have a charge that's been given to you as a leader to have integrity because other people are watching. Other people are learning. And in this context, then, when people get together and they see that God's place, which was supposed to be holy, the person in charge has said, nah, it's not that big of a deal. How are they going to respond? They'll certainly either embrace the same way of thinking. Or maybe it will, it will be something that will say, that can't go on any longer, but these people don't respond that way. They just say, okay, I guess it's all right, because we see more evidence of the erosion that's happening alarmingly quickly here. Second thing that happens is people have grown complacent in their giving in verses 10 through 14. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Remember, we had people coming into Jerusalem, and after a little while, they just leave. There's nothing there to support them. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and stationed at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. So the tithe had been neglected, and so the people who were receiving it and doing the work just left. 
And it makes you wonder, did the first point lead to the second? I mean, was it because the people who had been given charge of spiritual leadership, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do? Well, then the other people aren't going to do it either. And we don't believe the tithe, as the Old Testament pre presents it, is in effect for today. That 10% and the first fruits is a, is a principle that's carried over into the New Testament. When, when we see Christ arriving and fulfilling all that was pictured in it, but then because, because he's so much lovelier, because, because grace abounds, then God's people respond. Looking back to that, perhaps as a starting point. And as you know, most of the church statistics suggest that people give about 2%. Let's not neglect the house of God. You're generous givers for sure. But this is motivated, as we know, by our own love for Christ. I love how Paul encourages in 2 Corinthians 8, those he's writing, people who were poor. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, those are good things to excel in. He goes on to say, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I love that language. The grace of of giving. A giving is not a duty. It's not a burden. It's a grace that's been given. Because when you give generously, reflexively too, then the ice in your hearts can melt away for the materialism that's easy for us to slip into, especially in a society like ours, self-included. And the motive here is less browbeating. It's not because the pastors and elders are going to come to your house and start throwing beds out the windows and, you know, whatever the case may be. It's, it's because, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The all-compelling motive, then, not to neglect the house of God in any of these areas is because Christ himself did not. He who was rich became poor. So that in his poverty, you might be rich. You're wealthy in the grace that has been given to you. And in verse 13, Nehemiah appoints trustworthy men for the task of keeping up with the tithes. The kind of men that hopefully would keep God a priority to the end. And then third, here we see, the other thing that had happened is a people had grown complacent in honoring the purity of the Sabbath in verses 15 through 22. Here's just a little glimpse of that. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? When evening shadows fell on the gates of the Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut up and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a principle we noted even last week, and it's interesting because all the commitments they were making last week we saw in 10 through 12 are being broken now. 
in chapter 13. One of them was to honor the Sabbath, that principle of one day in seven that is set aside that God put way back in creation. He said, six days I've labored, the seventh day I rest. And I set that day aside, and I'm saying it is different. It is distinct. It is separate. It's holy. So you, believer, have the opportunity to enter that kind of rest that God has put into the rhythm of creation, into who you are fabricated to be. Work hard for six days. Rest for the seventh day. That's the pattern of creation, and that principle that we said last week is a gift to us as well. If you're tired and weary, you can always look forward to Sunday, one day in seven, or whatever day it is you set aside. Isn't that great to know? You don't have to wait until retirement to get rest. And when you get that break, it's a picture of the greater rest to come. We have work, we have value, we have purpose, we have meaning, but it's tiring. Because of sin in the fall, our gardens have weeds. There's miscommunication at work. You might be doing a job you don't even like. But one day, a day of rest will come, an eternal day of rest as well. And there's little glimpses of that that we get. And God has said, this is a picture of it. Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it pure. Don't let it be like every other day. And these people were sort of saying, wink, wink, we are honoring that. But they're doing the same stuff. They're engaging in commerce. And their hearts were then divided. They weren't, they weren't setting it aside as a day for worshiping God, for resting in him, for, for celebrating the goodness of salvation. Instead, they were thinking about profit lines and profit margins, and they hadn't changed. I've told you before, so this may be a repeat for some of you, that when I went to college at Grove City College, and I had a great experience there, they, they took this commandment very literally on the six days you shall work side of things, too. I had Saturday classes. My freshman year, I had accounting, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. And I had economics on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 8 a.m. And if any of you have teenagers or know, can imagine what that might be like. It was awful. My nickname was Rip for Rip Van Winkle. Because when people would come into uh, our room, which is quite the mecca for gathering, I was sleeping during the day. Because they were up all night till 2 or 3 a.m. And I had to get up while they were keeping me awake to go to school. So I'd come back and sleep. And like, this kid never always sleeps. Like, well, I never get any sleep. You're just here when I happen to be sleeping. And one of my professors then challenged me, too, as I was just forming my own sense of the world and to become a believer not that long ago, to set aside Sunday as a day when I did no homework. And that was not my regular practice. It's Saturday when I'm finished with classes. Typically, I'm exhausted. You just want to relax. But Sunday, I had to get ready for Monday, usually. And he challenged me. He said, Do, trust God with this. Build in that rhythm of rest and see what happens. And I did. And it was tough in the beginning until I began to see the benefits and the joy of having a day I could set aside. Completely distinct. And different. And look, there's struggles along the way too. Everything kind of seeps in, but God has given us this gift of rest. And we 
we disobey it to our peril, like any of the things that he's given us. We always think we have a better way. Have you noticed that? And so he gets upset with these people. And he says, honor the Sabbath. Put it aside. Make it pure. Keep it different. And he puts measures in place to make that happen. We don't all have that. We have to self-regulate at times, obviously. But hopefully God's spirit is convicting us in a way that we say, let's rest. Let's make it wholly distinctive. They hadn't done that. And the fourth, fourth thing that had happened is people had grown complacent in honoring the connection between faith and marriage. In verses 23 through 28, and we saw this already before. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. And actually, if you read on, he starts pulling out people's hair and that kind of stuff as well. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. That's what the concern is here, being led into sin by these women. Language, culture, eventually commitment to God, to the God of the Bible, who said, I'm your God, you're my people. They're being casually set aside. And that's a call to distinctiveness as well. This isn't an ethnic purity issue or even linguistic purity. It's about fidelity to faith. They're drawing you away from the God who saved and rescued you. And the example of that, Solomon, which I find kind of terrifying. What do you know Solomon for? Wisdom. Knowledge rightly applied. There's nobody who had as much wisdom as him, as he did. He had the most. And he does not finish well. He starts making compromises. That's why, it's ter that's why I look to older men and I say, please, help me. <laughs> I don't want to be like that. I want to be faithful to the end. You know, Jesus tells a parable of the sower, this person who's sowing seeds. And, and you remember what that's like. There's four kinds of seeds. and Only one ends up flourishing at the end. The others, either immediately it's taken away, and the seed is a picture of the hope of the gospel, the good news of Christ, that God is real, that he sent his son, that there's real life to be had in him, and him only. And stop constructing your own senses of what that looks like and lean into what God has revealed and follow him. Trust in him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love him, love others. That's what the gospel essence is. You can't do that without a sacrifice. Christ is offered for you. He's the shepherd, all these other ones, imperfect pictures. That's what life is all about, but we make our own way. Or maybe we don't. That sounds attractive, so we believe, but quickly it's gone because we don't have roots. In this life, difficulties come, shiny things appear, and you start chasing those or wondering if there really is a God after all. And that hope is stolen away from you. But one seed, that takes deep root and grows. And those trials, though they're difficult, become a purifying way to melt away your love and affection for the world and to grow up for the God who's given you breath. Solomon didn't 
seem to fit into that final picture. If you look at his life, this person who wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and he didn't finish well, and that's why I get terrified. I haven't written nearly what he's written. I haven't influenced nearly as many people. But what matters to me is being faithful to the end. And I can't do that unless I keep God a priority to the end. I made him one, yeah. But the Christian walk is going beyond affirmation of faith to living it out on a daily basis. And they had not done this. They had turned to idolatry. And Nehemiah comments many times in this passage, and he's done it throughout as well, for God to remember him. He wants to make sure that God knows he has kept God a priority to the end. And as far as we know, he does. But for all his reforms, for all his leadership, the people still fail to keep their commitments. Somebody asked me last week, a good question, what does this book have to do with Jesus? And hopefully along the way, we've been talking about that. It's a, it's a really good question. This whole book has been about rebuilding the foundations of Jerusalem, the holy city where God's, where God's people dwell. And that's a picture of him dwelling with them as well. But it's incomplete. That picture lies in ruins. And it will happen again. When Christ comes, however, he says, I am the embodiment of the new Jerusalem. Remember he says, destroy this temple and in three days it will be risen again. He says, I am God with you. When he shows up, the one who was with God in the beginning, through the, who's the agent of creation, says, that God has descended and is with his people. I am with you. And then he makes the promise that I am with you to the end of the age. So he is God with us, Emmanuel. He says, I am the true foundation. All this stuff that's built is built on me, the one foundation. These efforts to rebuild the city are incomplete without me. And so the story of the Bible concludes in the book of Revelation with the new Jerusalem descending and the presence of God with his people always. And in the meantime, Christ shepherds his people toward that destination. And this book shows us how God interacts with his people, how God's people respond to him wherever they might find themselves. But Nehemiah concludes, historically, the Old Testament canon. This is the last book. And we're left wondering, is there ever really going to be a change? Is there one who can come and clean up this mess? Because all these books so far leave us, it seems, with open-ended questions the people keep going back to the same thing. Is there somebody who will actually be faithful to the end? So when you open up the pages of the New Testament and read about Christ who has come, and you begin examining not only his claims about who he is, but his works, what he does, you begin seeing that the answer is yes. And that's why Christians love Christ. Because in him, all the promises of God are yes. I will be faithful to the end, sealed by the blood of Christ. Nehemiah, great guy, great leader. Questionable tactics, perhaps, at time as well. Maybe he was faithful to the end. We don't know. The people certainly weren't. Who is the one who will be faithful to the end? And the amazing thing about the gospel is Christ comes as the faithful, the true and faithful witness. 
And on the cross, he says, I'm going to take on your unfaithfulness and count it as mine. Who does that? Only Christ can do that. When he heals somebody who can't walk, he's paralyzed. He says, this is about a deeper healing. I've forgiven his sins. You can't measure that. If I tell you your sins are forgiven, can you see it on a piece of paper? But if I say to somebody who can't walk, rise and be healed, and they walk out, you're like, this is the real deal. So he does the lesser healing, making somebody walk who couldn't, to show he's got the power to do the greater healing, forgive sins. Only God can do that. And so Nehemiah points us to that reality. Will there be someone who's faithful to the end, a ruler who's not motivated by selfish gain or exploitation of power, one who's trustworthy, incorruptible, good? And John, when he gets this revelation and he writes, and we talked about the New Jerusalem, but I love how he begins this story here too uh, of his vision of Christ where he says, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. I mean, the book of Revelation is God's message to you, a letter from Christ. He says, who is the faithful witness. He's faithful. The firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father. To him... Be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And that's how Nehemiah points us to the person of Christ. Affirming belief and living it out, they're two different matters. Genuine and repeated repentance is one of the trademarks of living out this belief. That, that's part of what I love about Nehemiah. He is constantly, he began confessing sin and, and looking his and others as well. And he has this heart of tenderness. God, remember me to the end. Mortification of sin, putting sin to death. That's a trademark of living out this belief. Purity, fidelity, generosity, they're all trademarks. But as much as we aim for that target, we will continue missing it. Who will be faithful to step in when we are incapable Christ. This is why we love Christ. This is why we need him. This is why the grace that's shed by him is something we could never possibly merit. It's why Paul said to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so as we close the, the book of Nehemiah, hopefully that's what you leave with as well, is a, a reminder of Christ's sufficiency for us and the way that unlocks and motivates us to follow through with our commitments and then to realize when we don't, we have one who stands in for us and says, this is mine and I will not leave him. I will be faithful to the end. Father, thanks for the promises that we have. All of these things are yes in Christ. What are those promises? Things like, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Things like when we fall short when we sin, we have a sacrifice who's sufficient to step in. And not only a, a Christ who's compassionate, but one who's powerful, one who's able, one who is willing to do these things. So remind us of where we need to apply that afresh 
And may we not just have a, a kind of out there concept of rebuilding the foundations, but the real practical ways that we leave, where we are leaders who lead with integrity. We don't go complacent in the management of our resources. We keep the Sabbath holy. And we continue to honor the connection between faith and life itself. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.